This is the Living Word is On All podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Today's episode focuses on the parables of the hidden treasure, pearl, and net, found in Matthew 13, 44-58. Together we will be discussing what it looks like when we come face-to-face with the Kingdom of Heaven. Hi everybody, I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. And I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizontal Podcast, back with you. Um, This week, we're going to be finishing out Matthew chapter 13. Uh, So we'll be picking it up at uh, verse 44 and read on through 58. Um, But before we get to that point, as a quick reminder, uh, last week, if we were to kind of sum up the conversation about the the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast, we we kind of identified that as uh, what it looked like to exist in the kingdom of heaven. Um, and this week, we're going to move on from what it looks like to exist in the kingdom of heaven into this idea of what then is our response when faced with the kingdom of heaven? What do we do? How do we react? Um, And so without further ado, let's just jump right in. Natasha, will you read for us the first of the parables? Sure. This is Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. All right, so there we have it. Two pretty short parables, uh, but let's not let their length fool us. So what what do we have here? What are you guys seeing? When I was studying, I I recognized or or was able to understand how there's there's two perspectives here. So there's someone who who kind of stumbles upon a treasure. And, you know, like in, in our time, we have a bank. We can go and put our money in a bank, and it'll be safe, allegedly safe, in a bank. And so we have a place to put it that's safe. But in this time, they didn't have a bank to put money in. So they would take it, and they would bury it in a field. And oftentimes, they didn't make it back to get the treasure before before they died. So somebody else found it, and they would go sell all that they had to get this this treasure and on, on the other side of that, we have a merchant who understands pearls. And so when they see one that's of great value, they, they recognize, wow, there's, there's something here in this. So I'm going to go and sell everything that I have. I think, I think that's um, this idea of selling out initially um, upon coming in, in face-to-face with the kingdom of heaven is important. But then I think this continues where you have this continual selling out to the kingdom and that it's not just like I discover this treasure once and it's a one time thing, but I'm continually like moment by moment deciding that I'm going to sell out and sell everything no matter what it is that comes up, you know, 10 minutes from now, I'm still resolved to sell out for this kingdom. Um, And so I think it's um, it's a continual action as well. And I think, I guess, in in line with this conversation, the thing that comes to me is 
this idea in, in both of these situations. So whether it's the, the merchant or the, the man, um, neither of them were like being forced into their reaction, into their response. Um, neither of them, you know, were being told this is super valuable. You should, you know, give up everything for it. Both of them saw it and immediately knew that it was exceedingly valuable and that it was worth getting rid of everything they had so they could possess it. And so I think for me, the the thing that hits me is when we think about the kingdom of heaven, when we think about um, our response to it, it's not this thing that we're being forced into, but we ought to be able to recognize the exceeding value of what is before us in Christ. And our natural response is just one of, of complete and total like submission, I guess, to, to use different words where we are just willing to say, you know what, everything else can just go away. Not that I don't care about anything, but man, it, it is nothing in comparison to Christ. And so I'm willing, I'm ready to set that aside. And I think you bring in a good point, Natasha, in this idea of like this continual, um, like being willing to lay everything down for the value of the kingdom of heaven. The thing that stuck out to me, though, in, in these passages is they sold everything. So there was no going back. There was like maybe their life circumstance and the life circumstance we often have today are a little bit different in the sense of they, they already gave up everything. There was no option or opportunity to turn around and like they were okay with that. It was like full steam ahead. I'm going to go forward into possessing this, this uh, treasure of great value. Something you said earlier in your statement, in your response kind of stood out to me. And so I wanted to jump back to that if that's okay. Um, you mentioned that they didn't have to be told the value of what they were having. And, um, I think as Christians, we kind of, we, we've hopefully, if we're, we're following Jesus, we sold out for Jesus. And yes, we're in this battle of continually reminding ourselves that we've sold out for Jesus and continuing to make that choice. But also we have this task of evangelism, and we think that it's our responsibility to convince people or sell how good the kingdom is. But when people come face to face with the kingdom of heaven, like it sells itself. And so, um, I don't know, something, whatever it was that you said, it just, it struck me that, um, I think this is an important reminder for me that when I'm in conversation and when I'm, I'm wanting so desperately for people to, to catch a glimpse of the God that I know and of his kingdom that I focus on the good things that he's done and that he's doing um, because his kingdom will sell itself. Which goes back to part of the conversation we had last week and the importance of the story that we have to share, like uh, the the passage in, in Psalm, right, where Asaph was recounting the story of Israel for the purpose of 
the people being led back to faithfulness to God. And so, yeah, I think, I think our story is exceedingly important. Well, um, because we want everybody to have that, that same ex- that experience or encounter that we had, like we desire for people to have that because, you know, I, I remember like where I was when I got saved. I, I remember who the pastor was. Like I could take you to the place. Like those things like stick out to me. And so like I, I will never forget them as long as I'm in my right mind. Like, and I hope and pray that even if something happens that I still never forget, like that I'll still always be able to retell that because I'll never forget like what Jesus has done. And that's, that's an experience that we want everybody else to have. And when they have it, they come to that place where it's like, I'm going to sell everything. Like there's nothing greater. There's nothing better. There's nothing that I have that's better than what, what I've been given. And it's like that old hymn that, um, the things of this world will grow strangely strangely dim. dim. And, And that's, that's so true. So like, all those things that, that they had worked for to that point mattered none to them. They were like, hey, I recognize those things were nice, but they're only temporary. Like what I'm after is eternal. It's something that's going to last forever. And and that those times of, of like giving all again will come up and come up like a term we use, like sanctification. Like to me, it sounds that that's what I think of when I hear like this, like this life is a journey. Yeah, like this walk with Jesus is a journey. It doesn't just like, I, I don't like cap out. You know, this selling out, this will look really weird. Like people will think that's you are true. crazy. And, um, and I think that's kind of the hallmark that, okay, we're, we're on the right track. You know, people who don't know, who haven't seen the treasure or haven't experienced what the pearls mean, he sold everything. And like you said, he couldn't go back. So just think if if nobody, if people can't recognize what's going on and he sold everything, they had to have think he was crazy. Um, but I mean, I think a lot of serving Jesus is a lot of crazy. I mean, I think like even being here, the four of us in this room, like has a lot of what other people would say is like crazy. Like it doesn't make sense. And I mean, there's probably an element of within me that would say, you're right, it doesn't. But nonetheless, it's that selling everything when you recognize like, he's good, it's good. So whatever happens, just it happens. I think I even look and say, there's a little bit of crazy. <laughs> I do every day on my drive <laughs> to and from work. So that's good stuff. Let's Let's keep going. And uh, continue on with the parable of the net. So, Derek, would you pick up there in, in verse 47? The parable of the net. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out 
of his storeroom, new treasures as well as old. All right. Thank you for that, Derek. Um, so just like the last time, uh, let's talk about this a little bit. What, what are some observations that you have or, or things that are standing out to you in this parable? The kingdom of heaven is full of all kinds of people, the good fish, the bad fish, kind of like the wheat and the weeds. So I see similarities to what we talked about a few weeks ago. Yeah, that was actually one of the two of the things that I wrote in my margin as I was studying this was all are caught in the net. Um, And then this statement, I said, life under God's reign even includes those who refuse to accept it. And so this, I mean, we've already established a couple weeks ago that the kingdom of heaven is here and is now. And even if you don't recognize God as Lord and Savior, you are still existing within the kingdom. Now, you may not be subjecting yourself to the rule of the kingdom, but you are here. Um, And so this is just a continuation, seemingly a continuation of that conversation. So I have a question. Um, I am not a student of biblical studies, as you all are. Um, Can you guys explain verse 52 to me, please? Well, we can take a stab at it. Um, So that was part of the reason why I was actually super excited about this parable, um, is this last little bit. And I'll be honest, I read it, and I was like, what? I'm not sure I understand uh, what he's saying. But contextually speaking, Jesus has been speaking to um, Pharisees, teachers of the law, and the crowds, right? Like, but there's always this very intentional, like, identification that those types of people are there. Um, and so, what I'm understanding is Jesus is talking about like this idea that when when one of those people. So a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, somebody who um, is is very much so steeped in um, tradition. tradition in in the law, um, and it can it can extend even beyond just Pharisees and teachers. But when you have somebody like that that is confronted with the kingdom of heaven and has a response similar to that of the man who finds the treasure in the field or the merchant who finds the pearl. Um, it's like gold. It's amazing uh, because that person it then has the ability to essentially provide a bridge um, between the gospel that Christ is preaching and the law that is so um, heavily influenced everything that has been going on to this point and culture and society and what they do and how they do it. Um, and the, the thing that really caught me about this is I, it seems as though Jesus is giving the marching orders of Matthew 28, which is the great commission before even getting to the great commission. And I say that because he makes this statement. So he says, um, uh, I'll just read all of, I guess, 
verse 52. Uh, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And the storeroom is where you kept things safe. That's where you would put stuff if you didn't want people to get to it. And Jesus is saying that when somebody becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven, no longer are they operating in a place where they are trying to pack things into a storeroom where they are kind of filing it away. But all of that is just being brought out because they can't help but share what they have. And so kind of like what you were saying earlier, Derek, about this idea of you never want to forget um, that first encounter with Christ when you came face to face with that treasure of great worth and you want other people to be able to experience that. Like that is what Jesus is talking about here where these, these disciples in the kingdom of heaven come to this place where it's like this treasure is worth everything. I'm going to sell everything so that I can that I can possess it, but this treasure is too valuable for me to just possess and tuck it away for forever. I have got to pull it out of the storerooms. I have got to go from here. And so it's it's like the disciple in the kingdom of heaven is one who is a disciple maker that makes disciple makers. Like it's not just this this nugget that that I can grab for the per- the sake of my salvation it is it is this overwhelming treasure that i have the uh privilege of encountering and my only response is to give my life to the furthering of that it almost feels like a, a command and, and maybe that's kind of what you are alluding to but you know, it's the kingdom of heaven is like, and we have these these fish that it, all the fish exist in the kingdom, and you have good or you have bad fish. And to me, it almost feels like he's saying, like, if you are a good fish, there's like no exception. Therefore, like, since you are a good fish, every one of you has, that's become a disciple has to bring that all out. And so, what what has happened? What has taken place? If you've found this this pearl or this treasure, like there's not an exception. If you found those things, if you are a good fish, then this is what you have to do. So I don't know to me, like to go back to like the way we kind of used to do the, uh, the, the Wednesday night with the teens uh, at, at a previous church. Um, we kind of were walking through them with scripture and we asked them to look for certain things. And to me, this feels like a command. Um, and so thanks for pointing that out. No, that's so good. Thank you for pointing that out. I mean, it it is. It's directly in line. And and I think the the final piece of this particular set of verses that really excites me is actually verse 51. Cause it's that like um it's a transition, but it's like the the linchpin of everything. So Jesus has been having this huge conversation uh with the masses but then also these other conversations with his disciples in private, trying to help them understand things. And instead of just saying, here it is, and then walking away, he lays it all out. And then he says, have you understood all of these things? So 
their response is as recorded is simply yes but i'm sure there was more than just a simple yes maybe yes kind of summarizes what their response was uh but the thing that really excites me is that jesus does all this teaching and then he asks the question do you understand and so jesus does not just see his role right jesus is essentially the one who is leading these men he is the teacher he is the rabbi but he does not just see his role as i tell you and then i move on his role is to teach but then to stop long enough to make sure that learning or retention has occurred and and i think that kind of just speaks into into us and into me as somebody who is responsible for leading and really all of us whether we are you know have the title of pastor or have the title of mom or dad or have the title of even friend um in one way or another we all find ourselves in a position of influence where we as christians are placed in a position to to essentially teach and and to point people to the kingdom of heaven and it's important that we don't just think that okay all we have to do is tell and move on but there's an element of sure there may be some teaching but we also need to take a moment to stop and say are you picking up what i'm putting down is this making sense to you even to the point of maybe <laughs> can you w- would you mind repeating back to me what you heard from me what you understood um and that way I mean, again, this is setting the stage for Jesus to then say, so you have a responsibility then. Like you are going to bring this stuff out of the storerooms. You're not going to just pack it away like the Matthew 28 Great Commission, right? This command. So one thing when you were talking about that, um, so I'm a leader in my facility and we have to go through these classes and talk about, you know, how to effectively lead. And one thing that is talked about quite often is closed loop communication. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's doing closed loop communication, making sure that the crowd understands what he is trying to convey to them. So for the person who, well, for me, what is the opposite of closed loop communication? It's open loop communication. (laughs) So would that be more just like this, like, open air, I'm going to tell you, and then just kind of walk away from Mm -hmm. the conversation. Yeah. Not leave room for clarification. Um, We practice things like read back where I tell you something and you tell me back what I said, Um, or I tell you something and ask, do you understand? And you repeat. And if you don't, then we have questions and things like that. It's consistent with teaching theory. Which ultimately should mean it should be also consistent with what this looks like for us as disciples who are making disciples that make disciples or to say it easier, 
what it should look like for us as disciple makers, right? Um, there should be this intentional process that we're going through where we're not just saying, thus saith, and then moving on, but where we are journeying with people. And we've used that word a number of times over the last podcast that we've, last few podcasts we've done, and even to, today, and where we journey with people and we allow the space for questions. We allow the space for feedback. We allow the space to assess yeah, uh, uh, their understanding. Even do more than just allow the space, but intentionally include the space, right? That's what Jesus did. He didn't just like s- teach and then sit back silently. He actually said, you understand? Well, it really like, it really like goes against the grain of what the, the Pharisees would have done because they were, they were very black and white. Like these are the laws and that's it. Like there's, there's nothing else. It's like live one way. There's no need for like repeating back. You just retain, retain, retain. And then this is what the law says. And Jesus is in his infinite wisdom is not, it's the bringing the old and the new out. So it's, it's having the law, but then helping people to understand that I am the law. The law can only be fulfilled through me and, and taking it further than just a, this is what, this is what you have to do. Like, if I tell my kids to do something but don't explain why, like the why is important. And I feel like that's what Jesus, it's not just asking the question, but trying to help them understand the why. Because we're going for heart change, not just behavioral change. Right. I know, I mean, we still have a pretty good chunk of scripture that we need to go through. But as you were talking and you made this connection of like this kind of flies in the face of, what was happening then I couldn't help but even think, man, this kind of even challenges the paradigm of what we do now. Um, I mean, I want to be careful, but maybe we've fallen a little bit short and and I say, we, we, all of us have fallen a little bit short of, of effectively discipling the people that God has brought into our ministries because for too long we have relied too heavily on a, what was it? Open loop? No, open loop. Open. Do you say loop? Is that what open? That's what I said, but I don't actually know what it's called. Oh, okay. So an open. Ineffective communication is what it is. <laughs> for far too long we've relied on this open version that is so dependent on proclamation alone and it's not that proclamation is not important but there's more to it right there's more to it and i mean we've we've seen the decline in sunday school attendance and all churches all together doing away with sunday school we've seen the decline of midweek like discipleship attendance and some places that we know of even, again, doing away entirely with those things so that, or not so that, but, and then essentially only leaving the Sunday morning gathering, which is a great celebration time together where we worship God. But then it's like the only avenue for people to, to hear 
and to even grow in their faith collectively is when they're sitting in a chair or a pew for 25 to 45 minutes, depending on who's preaching, and no opportunity to even begin to digest what is being addressed, what is being proclaimed. Um, and so I think even this, this very conversation, as, as challenging as it may have been to the um, establishment then, I think we should hear this as a challenge even to us now goes back to like our our conversations on on building relationships and building community because we can't just expect that our passing because really in, in some ways a sermon on Sunday I've I've done it you've done it you've done it like we've gotten up there and we've spoken and I I do believe that that seed can affect a life but as you talked about last week there's more to it than just that one time like that's a lot of pressure to think that, you know, in these 25 to 45 minutes that that you have to, like, do something that, that somebody should have been doing all along, walking beside someone. And, and like, this idea that I can invite somebody to church and then the, my pastor is going to be the one that, that changes their life. Like, if you're, in, if you're involved in that person's life, you should be affecting change. Don't expect that somebody's going to go on a Sunday morning and make all the difference because honestly, pastors don't make the difference anyway. So it's God's word. It's not mine. Well, it's and you're, you're better equipped to make that change because you know them, you're in relationship with them. You're walking with them day in, day out, and you get to l- use the practical life circumstances to shape and disciple them, right. which is what Jesus did with his disciples. Like right here, what we're, what we're seeing. And, and kind of like you said, like, I, I, I do want to be careful, but we, we can't make, and I know this is a conversation that we have had, but you can't make evangelism a Sunday morning task. Like, that's not the point. Like, can it happen on Sunday? Absolutely. But is that the only time that discipleship and evangelism should happen? Hopefully not. Right. And so, like, like I would agree. Like, we've we've fallen asleep or been lulled into this like idea that that that's what Sunday morning was built to be. And um, judging by the fact that Jesus spent three years with disciples, I would say that Sunday morning is not all that it, like that can't be it. Well, I mean, there's some really good conversation here that we have going on, but we do have uh, what four or five more verses that we've to, to close out uh, Matthew 13 um, so, Brittany, would you take us through those verses, um, and then we'll have some kind of close-out conversation. Yep, starting in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. I, I just love that Jesus is for 
for the underdog. Um, in every situation, he comes out of the places that you least expect. And again, here you see it in Matthew. We've talked about this before with the genealogy and just how the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew is full of just, sh- you know, the shouldn'ts or the, you know, the mess ups or the screw ups. And um, here Jesus is, you know, just among the usual, you know, aren't these his sisters and aren't, you know, isn't this his mom and dad? And like, who is he? Who is he? And yet he's doing these incredible, miraculous things. And so I just, I, I think that's so encouraging and empowering that, that Jesus, he works, he works in the least expected places. I think of the lyrics uh, from, I don't know who sings the song, but come to the table, come meet this motley crew of misfits. Like that's, it's kind of what it, you are saying that, that's what it, it reminds me of. The, 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 least expected avenue is is generally the one that Jesus seems to uh to go to i think the the th- thought that comes to my mind when i was hearing Brittany read specifically the the kind of excuses is the word i'll use uh, that these people were giving for who Jesus was, and it, it seems as though they are they are dismissing him, and and so in by dismissing him in this way, they are actually disarming the movement that could be happening, because when they are saying, "Well, isn't this essentially?" just a nothing from nowhere. They are belittling the miracles that he is doing and ultimately setting the stage for kind of a distancing themselves of, of his ministry. And I think that's potentially why we get to verse 58 or how we get to verse 58, where it says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. It's it's as if in some way we have our faith somehow in some miraculous way partners with what God's will is. And when those two things come together, nothing can stand against and it's, it's almost like our faith unleashes this whole other piece of what God wants to accomplish in the world. And so by us believing, um, somehow uh, he is able to accomplish even more than, than what w- would have otherwise been possible. And so I guess a question um, that we regularly ask ourselves in our times together throughout the week that maybe all of us should be asking is what are we believing God for? What do we believe? And this isn't like, I believe he's going to give me a million dollars. Like this isn't that, that kind of stuff. Cause I, I think you had another important statement there where you said, you know, our faith, our belief coming like in in line with the will of God, so there there's an important conversation or an important 
piece there for it to come together. But I mean, what, what do we believe that God is going to accomplish? What, what do we see in the world around us that is not as it should be in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, we've just gone through a couple of weeks of talking about what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven, to live in the kingdom of heaven, to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, to respond to the kingdom of heaven. And so what is it in our lives that we can look around and say, man, that does not look like some of the pieces of the kingdom of heaven that were discussed. And so what do you, what are we believing that God is going to do in those situations to continue to bring his kingdom into the world here and now? And man, maybe that's where, I mean, we are in, we're in the first week of Advent. Maybe that's where the hope is that, that the kingdom is here and now, that we have we are standing face to face with the kingdom, and we have the opportunity to respond. And we have responded, and now there's this reality that our continued faith and the our actions in faith and our participation with Christ in faith will continue to usher in his kingdom more and more and more until that day of judgment when the net is pulled up or when the harvest is called in and separation begins to occur. The hope is that Christ has come and is empowering each and every single one of us to continue to work on behalf of the kingdom that others may allow themselves to be subject to the same. Yeah, I would say... uh live by like that faith I feel like is the like exclamation on the whole chapter of all that Jesus has talked about up to this point. Like if you want to see the field changed, if you want to see all the field be like the good soil, live in faith, like do what he's asked you to do. Like as we talked about at the end of that, like, you know, um, don't just, don't just have the, uh, the stories and keep them to yourself, but bring it all out. The old and the new, Allow them to come together and see the weeds turn to wheat, see the the bad fish become the good. Like, if you want to affect change, you're living in the kingdom. So live by faith. Do what he's called you to do. Don't, like, sit back in your holy huddle that we talked about and expect the world to change. Like, it's live by faith that even the person that, like, I think about with Jesus, like, with at Matthew's house or with the tax collectors, you know, the Pharisees were whispering, like, what are you doing here? And he tells them, like, plainly, this is why I'm here. I'm here because it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Live among the sick in faith that they're not going to be sick any longer. Be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about the church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.